good morning again. I, I don't know if you guys remember where we were three or five weeks ago. It feels like it's been forever because of the snow. So I don't, I guess that happens whenever you're used to meeting um, every week. And then there's so many things going on with so many people out right now because they're at home healing or they're sick. It seems like there's so many people I haven't seen much longer than just a week. And so it's, it's good to be back here with all of you and, and uh, ready to study God's word. And, and as we did this morning, singing songs that uh, tell of the glory of God and everything that he's done, uh, I think we're sufficiently ready to turn back to Ephesians chapter 3 as we explore what is so great about this mystery that God has before us. Um, I do want to recap, though, before we, we read, just to maybe bring us all back up to speed on where we left off. Two weeks ago, whenever we were looking at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3, one of the remarks that we made kind of by way of introduction, was wouldn't it be great, or isn't it great, whenever you're drafted into a great secret? And we talked about how secrets are something special that you can share between somebody else. And whenever you are on the inside and you know a secret, well, it's actually something that we kind of enjoy. Paul's writing in Ephesians chapter 3 about this mystery of God's grace. And really what he's saying is, There is a tremendous secret that we get to be on the inside of. The reality is, it's not one of those secrets that we want to keep to ourselves very long. Instead, it's such a secret, the nature of it is that that it's so amazing. The the word he uses is unsearchable, or unfathomable, or, or untappable, unsearchable. So astounding that the real work of this mystery is not in the work of keeping it secret or keeping it private or protecting the privacy thereof. Instead, it's understanding it and actually getting a grasp on it. That's the real work. It's it's the greatest secret that everybody knows about. When a few years ago... um, when I was working in an office setting, there was a, a particular program, and the way that you configured the program was there was a secret, it was a five-letter password, and it was, it was very secure. It was the word star. And it was a five-letter password, and you would type that in, and you could get into the back end of the program, and you could do all of the configurations you could set where everything mapped, and nobody was supposed to know what this, this password was except maybe a handful of people, but really nobody. And um, from time to time, I would have to train people on how to do you know, these kind of configurations thing, and I, and I would always tell them, I'm going to tell you the most, the most um, well-known secret in this entire company. It is the five-letter password star. One day, uh, one of our vendors came over and saw me typing this password in, and I thought he was going to blow his lid. He said, you're not supposed to know this. And I said, well, I do. The secret we're talking about this morning is, I think, much greater than that. So let's turn them. In our Bibles, we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 3, looking at verses 7 through 10. Before we read together, I'd like to pray. 
Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come together and to gather and to look at your word. And God, just the privilege that it is to be able to read your inspired word. And God, as we come to you this morning, I first pray that you would seek us and that you would disclose and and help us to come to you with clean hearts. God, that you would forgive us of our sins, remove any distractions, give us removed Remove us from the burdens that we carry with us, that we would be able to worship you this morning. God, as we come to you, I pray that you wouldn't hide yourself from us, but that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the wonderful truths found in your law. Specifically, an understanding of this great mystery that we're reading about. Father, we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you will, read along with me while I read out loud. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The first thing we'll look at is... um, well, I guess just a bit of context. Who's talking? It's Paul. We're familiar with Paul. And he, he writes, he's writing and he's interrupting himself. We, we looked at this last week, really beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul begins to pray and he doesn't actually continue his thought until he gets to verse 14. You'll notice that verse 1 and verse 14 begin the same way. For this reason. And what Paul really wants to say is he wants to begin praying. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And and he's praying for application of all of the truths that he's laid out in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Namely, the unity that is inside of the church, that we've been united together through the Spirit. That by grace, all people have been grafted into the kingdom of God if they are found in Christ. Which means that they have surrendered to him and made them Lord of his life. This is the good news that he's writing. But in verse 1, he, he starts with this and he interrupts himself. He says, hold on, you're not ready for this application. Let me explain myself again. And so he begins to reinforce just how big the things that he's talking about um, are. So he's beginning to explain it. This gospel This good news that he's writing about or that he mentions in verse 7. He's actually talking about this mystery that's explained in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, the message that he is bringing to the people is that there is unity in the body. More specifically, that the Gentiles and the Jews that he's writing to are united to each other. Co-heirs, they're equals. There is no delineation or separation because they've been unified in the body of Christ. We spent some time talking about this and I, um, I, I hope you guys are 
tired of hearing it by now, but this was a real issue in the first century church. The Jews and the Gentiles didn't necessarily get along. Is that a shock to anyone? I hope not. We've talked about some of the cultural differences that have provoked this and that have hinged this, and even the the historical understanding that the Jews had where they, they knew that through the the, the Jews, that the entire world would ultimately be blessed to a point of even being included in salvation, but they understood that they might have some sort of special place or some sort of special privilege um, in, in God's house because they were the chosen people. And they are. But here Paul writes that there's no separation, that the Gentiles are co-heirs, that they're equals, and, and This is a difficult message to bring. In fact, it's the message that lands Paul under house arrest in Rome to begin with. The the conflict around this was amazing. Not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. How could I possibly be grafted in to a body that is so prejudiced? More specifically, Paul says, I've been made a minister according to this gift of grace. More specifically, he says that my calling as an apostle is not to the Jews or even to my own people, but it's actually to the Gentiles that need to hear this good news and come be a part of this family. This is how much he believes in it, but... Here we need to realize that this isn't just the words of a man writing a letter to a church while under house arrest, but this is also the inspired word of God. That he was carried along by God's Holy Spirit as he wrote each of these words. And he begins to explain something phenomenal. That God's grace here is so amazing It blows the top off of what the Jews understood historically. We see Paul's calling into ministry, which was more specifically for the Jews, and we see how just how difficult a task it was before him. And I really do think that we've done a good job of covering this over the past month or so, the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so I won't belabor the point any more this morning, but there's one point I think we should point out or at least spend time considering that this issue of separation or division amongst the Jews and the Gentiles isn't an issue that has necessarily eradicated itself in the church today. And let me be clear, I don't think that the church has an issue or the Gentile church has an issue with Jews, or that the Jewish church has an issue with Gentiles. Rather that when we understand what this picture is of the church, this body coming together that is united in one, that there's not just a spiritual unity, but what we're actually aiming for is a manifestation of the spiritual unity in the way that we live our lives and in our actions and the ways that we function. This type of unity is a difficult thing to aim at. It's certainly a difficult thing to achieve. Yes, it's as simple as 
Those who are in Christ share a spiritual unity among each other, but putting that into action is not something that is easy. Ultimately, if the church is really to put this into action, it requires us to have a focus that is solely on Christ. To really be unified as the body, we have to recognize the sole head of that body. We have to put our attention on it and, and consider what it means. And that's what Paul's writing. That's why he interrupts himself, because he says, what I'm talking about, it's a big deal enough. But unless you get past the little bitty application pieces of it, you're not going to understand how big the idea actually is. And so here he goes explaining that I've been made a minister according to God's gift of God's, according to the gift of God's grace. I've been made literally the word minister. Deaconos means I've been made a servant. I have been made a servant of this good news according to the gift of God's grace. It has so... uh, taken hold of me, taken hold of my burdens and my passions that I am a servant to it. I cannot run away from it. In fact, notice that Paul doesn't say I made myself a minister or that I was prepared for this job or that I had any special qualifications for this job, but that I was made a minister. I was made a servant, just like a piece of clay isn't formed into a pot or a vase or a plate, but instead it is turned into that by a creator. Paul writes, I was made a servant. When I started to understand this incredible secret that is before us, I was made a servant. And even this was according to God's grace, God's unmerited favor to me, which by the working of his power, and that word working, it's actually the same word where we get our word energy. Or if you think about it, the thing that really spun this into motion, the energy behind it was actually God. God's power to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the word preach there isn't the the normal word that we think of when preach. It's not the kind of preaching that I'm doing here this morning. In in the Greek, that word would be keruso. I'm preaching or I'm heralding or I'm exclaiming the truth to you. But here Paul actually uses the word preach. It's the word evangelo. Or the evangelism. He's evangelizing these Gentiles. So that ev- so, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Back up for a minute. We realize that this grace or this calling that Paul has on his life, this calling to ministry isn't something that he did. Instead, it is something that begins in God's power and is given to him. This great issue that he's up against of unifying or bringing unity in the body of Christ, specifically between Jew and Gentile, isn't something that comes from his own passion. Instead, it's something that comes from God working in him. And... and We have to watch out here as we begin to admire Paul's humility. But he writes, verse 8, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints. In all of this, he recognizes his own lack of position. 
See what I'm saying? God's grace is given by the working of God's power and it's given despite position. And there's something cool happening in the language in verse 8. I don't know if you realize historically or I guess more traditionally because I don't know how we confirm it, but Paul's thought to not be a very big man. He's thought to be a pretty small man. In fact, his name, Paul, literally means little one. And here he writes to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the word that's translated there for to the very least could also be translated the littlest of. Paul's emphasizing his frailty. I mean, this is what makes the gospel the gospel, right? We talked about this back. Chapter 2 doesn't begin with, by God's grace, you have been saved through faith. It begins with, this is how much you needed a savior. And here Paul writes, this grace has been given to me, Paul, the little one, the littlest of the littles, because I'm so small. Our translators or my translator for the ESV says, for the very least of all the saints, certainly the lowest in position amongst all of the saints. Here is Paul given this grace. And I marvel at this humility and I wonder how could anyone pick this up or I, and I thought about it. I, I think the wrong way to do it is probably by building yourself up. That makes sense. But how do we actually adopt this form of humility? I think humility is something that's easily misunderstood. We think to be humble means to put yourself down all the time, and, and that's not the case. In fact, I think putting yourself down all the time is a strange form of pride. can't remember who to ascribe this quote to, but humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it's thinking of yourself less. And we see it in Paul. Not necessarily because he's putting himself down, but because he recognizes that in comparison to this mystery that he is trying to expound upon to this church that he's, that he's writing about, that he's burdened for, that he's called to ministry for, not, not just called to ministry for, but made a servant for, and, and all of these different things, where does it come from? This mystery. Where, where, where is this humility? And, and I realize... To adopt this kind of humility isn't something that comes about through redefining yourself or um, uh, just forcing yourself to think of yourself less or be more proactive to think about other people. Rather, just like the issue that Paul is writing about where I said, if we really want to be a church unified and to see that manifestation of our spiritual unity in one another to come out in our actions and our lives, I said the way that we do that is by placing our attention and our focus on Christ. If you really want to be humble the way that Paul is humble, all you have to do is put your individual attention on Christ because when you do that and you see the magnitude of this mystery that he's writing about, when you spend time thinking about what this great mystery is, it crushes you. Paul's not saying that I am the littlest of the littles because he's trying to put himself down. He's not saying I'm small because he's trying to be humble or come across humble or, or, or communicate with his audience well. The reason he says I'm the littlest of the littles is because he realizes that the grace that he's writing about is so big. So 
unsearchable, untappable, unfathomable. What is he? Friends, think about it. Our lives are described in the Bible as a vapor. They're one minute and gone. Certainly we've seen our share of that over the past couple of years. Fleeting moments in the scheme of history. And here we have maybe an hour a week, 45 minutes a week, to sit together in this room and to ponder this mystery that Paul's trying to bring to light. We don't have to spend much time on it at all for it to begin to make us feel rather insignificant. I, I don't say that to make you feel insignificant, by the way. Just to see the real application. If you want to be the church, Spend your time thinking about Christ. If you want to be humble, spend your time thinking about Christ. Well, I spent enough time on that, I think. Let's spend some time talking about this unsearchable mystery. This unsearchable mystery. This thing that is supposed to make us humble, supposed to unite us in the body and everything else. This unsearchable riches of Christ that Paul describes. He's actually stealing a word there from the Old Testament. Because what Paul's writing about, not only is it unsearchable, it's untraceable. The riches of Christ, when, when we start, if we tried to follow it, we can't follow it all the way back because it's infinitely mass. The grace of God is so big, you can't tap it dry. And this isn't just forgiving our sins. I'm not talking about that because that's mercy, right? When we talk about the depravity that's inside of man and the need of forgiveness that we all have, well, that's mercy. I need somebody to give me mercy. That is to not judge me justly the way that I deserve. God's grace is bigger than that. It's not just mercy. It's not just escaping what we do deserve. He gives us more. Go back to what Paul writes, uh, I think it's chapter 1, verse 8. What is God doing with these riches as Paul, as Paul be, begins to describe what is here that blessed be God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Look at verse 8. Pay attention to this. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. These unsearchable, untraceable, unfathomable graces of God. These riches that Paul is trying to describe and trying to bring to light to the Gentiles. God lavishes them upon us. Let 
lavishes. I can't think of a good enough word picture to kind of draw that into mind. It's cold out, so maybe we have dry skin. Some of you have been putting lotion on your hands. To lavish means that you fill a tub or a swimming pool up with said lotion and you dive in. These unfathomable, unfathomable, untraceable. The magnitude of this is incredible. I mean, it's devastating when we, when we start to measure it. Actually, one of the, the definitions of the word that Paul uses is immeasurable. Here they are. They come from heaven. Because, because these, these riches, they don't come from this world. They're unperishable. Not only are they infinite in their abundance, but they are infinite in their um, prosperity. They don't perish, they don't run out, they don't corrupt. No wonder Paul's been made a, a servant of this. And here he writes, and I said he's interrupting himself because he's trying to clarify once again. The word he uses, he says, to bring to light, literally to illuminate or to be a a candle in a dark room that you would be able to begin to see what I can't even begin to describe or explain because it's just that big. It's just that big. And I just want you to begin to see it. The unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of this mystery, this big secret that has been hidden for ages? How is he supposed to do this? In the time that he lives in, people are is particularly right. The Jews and the Gentiles, they're bickering amongst each other and there's division. There's this whole issue in Acts chapter 16 where what should a, a Gentile have to do to become a member of the church? And, and, and so they, they try to figure that out. And then Paul ends up getting thrown in prison because he says that the Gentiles are a part of the co-heirs of the promises of God all the way back to Abraham because, because they've been grafted into this body. And so he gets thrown in jail. How is he supposed to do this? To bring to light the magnitude of this great mystery when people won't even get over what they are focused on right in front of them. Things that not only are insignificant, but are actually taking away from their ability to begin wrapping their heads around the magnitude of God's grace. I said that the word for preach in our passage this morning is not the word keruso, which means to herald. Instead, it is the word that we get our English derivative, the word evangelism, because he does want to see these people be saved. And so we ask, how is it possible that he could do this or that these people could even begin to be saved? And, and we, I, I cannot help but think about the familiar passage in Romans chapter 10, where Paul again writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These almost seem like parallel passages. What Paul's trying to do here. How are these people supposed to begin to believe if that's the origin of salvation? Romans 10, 14 goes on. How then will they call on it? Call on him in whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? One of the most amazing things about this mystery isn't just the magnitude or the size of it, but how pivotal it is to God's church. The church. We see a lot of adjustments whenever we make plans. Actually, I joke sometimes that I make plans just to break them, and I love planning. I love having a strategy. Uh, Michelle and I, I, pretty regularly, we'll lay in bed and we'll talk about, okay, what's the plan in five years? Where do we want to be then? You know, there's things to think about. We have two little babies, and they're going to want cars. By the way, I probably won't get them one. But they're, they're going to want stuff. And someday they're going to, well, Charlotte, probably not Bubba. He hits his head way too much. But Charlotte might want higher education, and you have to pay for that too. So we plan. I've never been able to successfully plan and execute it perfectly. The best plans I've ever executed left enough room in them for it to be dynamic and to respond what was respond to what was going on in the moment just enough to not blow the entire thing off course. God isn't like me or you. That means when God plans, His plans have no need to change because He can actually plan perfectly. And we start to see the picture of the church. That God's people would be unified in one body, reflecting the body of Christ in the world. That the people would gather together and that they would sing songs of praise and worship. That they would hear one another singing that they would encourage one another, that they would bear one another's burdens, that they would herald the good news. The plan hasn't changed. Since the formation of the church during Jesus' earthly ministry, it hasn't changed one bit. It's not changing. It never will change until Jesus comes back. In fact, an interesting thing about this mystery, if you spend any time studying uh, the, the, the phases of biblical history, the church era that we are currently in is also referred to as the mystery era. Because this is the great mystery that God didn't reveal in times past. It's this great secret that he hasn't disclosed to people who came before us. Instead, he's disclosed it to us. And it's the plan that brings us all the way to the day of glory. You see, the church is so pivotal to this because, well, in fact, it is what is being celebrated. 
The same issue, when we start to look at this and begin to apply it to our lives, we say, well, I don't have issues with Jews or Gentiles. I don't see that conflict, but I still see division. I still see people that are, are focused on things that are right in front of them, and they, they've got this kind of superficial issue that they can't get past. It's like a thorn that just won't go away, and, and they can't see the bigger picture of what God's doing in His kingdom. They can't see the, 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 the divine ordination of, of the local body and the assembly of God's people and what we're actually trying to accomplish. This mystery, it's so big, they can't, even, they can't even begin to scratch the surface of this mystery because they're still looking at this thing that doesn't matter so much. Because here's what we're actually trying to get at. We're, we're trying to preach this good news, not just to encourage us, but to evangelize that we would see more people begin to understand how big this mystery is. This mystery that has been hidden for ages, it is the church. I want you to look at this really fast with me. If you don't have your Bibles open or you didn't open them earlier, I want you to open them right now. This is so big. Ephesians chapter 3 Let's just read from verse 9 what Paul is bringing to light. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. Here's a secret, not disclosed to all of the people who came before us. It's been hidden for ages. In God, who created all things, so that through the church, through the, the ecclesia, the called out local assembly, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Let me stop for a second. This secret is so big that everyone who came before us, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenants, everything that happened in Jewish history leading up to Jesus' birth, the establishment of the church during Jesus' earthly ministry, for the first time something was disclosed or it was revealed or illuminated to us that the church is going to do something profound. Coming back to this grace that we've been talking about. And we think about that, we think it's big, but if you look at verse 10, who is this mystery being disclosed to? The rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We're talking about the celestial beings, we're talking about angels. So think about how this is playing out. In all of history, the heavenly hosts are worshiping God, doing God's work, and they're doing all of these different things. They're in heaven with God, and they're praising Him. There's the picture in Isaiah when um, the prophet gets a picture of what's going on in heaven, and he sees the seraphim singing to, uh, among the throne of God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they don't know what the plan is. They just know that God has one. And here they are, and Jesus comes, and Jesus is crucified, and He takes on, He identifies with you, 
and he recognizes the sin that is inside of everyone's life and he identifies with every single person on a personal level, bearing their sins up on a cross that he might die, goes into a grave, is resurrected, and the church goes on. And the church goes on. And these angels who are able to see all of this, these angels see the church become established in this body, spiritual body that has been unified with one another. They see this body begin to come together in local assemblies. And they see new bodies being formed which are a part of the larger spiritual unity. And all of these different things are happening. And the angels in heaven rejoice. Because for the first time, this mystery of God has been revealed to them. Here's how big it is. This mystery, this great secret, isn't something that was just secret to us. It was secret to everything. And it's revealed in the church. God's plan to see the lost become saved. Take a minute and we get another picture of heaven whenever we will be there in Revelation 5, verse 1. Let me just start reading. Here's this depiction. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw the mighty angel proclaiming to, with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven homes, horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll with the right hand and hit with him and who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders all down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers for the saints. And they sang a new song saying, here's the response to this great mystery being disclosed. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals as you were slain and your blood and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John continues to write, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I don't know if we've 
simply just become so callous to, to hearing what is referred to as the gospel. But in studying this, I will confess that I certainly think that I was. We hear the good news and we spend time trying to even just summarize it so that we can explain it more effectively. And we don't try to simplify it or water it down or to trivialize it, but I mean, we hear it so much, we become calloused to it. We talk about putting our attention on Jesus, that we might be humble, that we might be a unified body. Well, I think we've become callous to this whole idea of putting our attention on Jesus or what He's done. Just looking at God's Word, we see the reaction of the heavenly host and the saints, John, who's included in this picture, in heaven, who are literally crying out because they don't know what God's plan is. You heard the, the elders remark, who is worthy to open this scroll? And no, not one, not one man, not one person until the lamb who was slain takes the scroll and he is worthy. And the heavenly host and the saints who are in heaven cry out, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. Paul writes in Romans 10 that all it takes to be saved is to believe. To confess with your mouth. It's that simple. But you'll never understand it. If you don't look at what, it, what, what you're believing in. Because here through the church... The manifold wisdom is disclosed not just to all men and all people, but to every heavenly host, every celestial creation, everything inside of creation. The church is being celebrated. Because when we begin to resemble the spiritual unity that Paul's talking about, God's wisdom is seen in us. And that will never happen as long as we're looking at issues like the division between Jew and Gentile. That will never happen unless we adopt the humility of the apostle in Ephesians chapter 3. Unless we put our focus on Christ so much that we allow it to crush what we think of ourselves, as we begin to recognize our own necessity of a Savior, as we begin to see the magnitude, the worthy, the, the praise that He is receiving, and we begin to wrap our heads around what He's done for us. That's when the church is glorified. Normally I'll say something by way of invitation and I'll ask you to come down if you want to respond to this message or to do stuff. I don't want to do that this morning. I just want to pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much.
for the mystery that you have given to us. God, I pray that, and I do pray, and I pray it so often, and I pray I wouldn't become just callous to it. But God, I pray that um, you would open the eyes of our heart. That we would be able to behold the amazing truths that you have before us. That we would be able to understand it. Not just with solemnity or reverence, but that we would we would be able to respond to it the way you've called us to. And God, I pray this morning, as we sing one last song, God, I pray that you would hear us rejoicing for how worthy you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I say I normally don't do an invitation, and the reason I don't want to do the one this morning is um, I think we know how to respond. So before we get out of here this morning, as a church, we're going to stand and we're going to respond to God's word being proclaimed. Would you stand with us as we sing? Sing number 371.